Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. I don't think that the newspaper business is totally dead, but I do think that it's increasingly a luxury. The people who will subscribe to a newspaper are the kinds of people who engage in other luxury activities, like people who buy vinyl. Hey, what are words for if no one's paying for them anymore? USA Today's parent is going hostile on the long-suffering owner of the LA Times. Not to buy growth, mind you, but to buy time, hopefully, hopefully to figure out digital. The New York Times is cutting back overseas. Magazines keep thinning out, and even hotshot digital media shops are rethinking ambitions. Brand studios, podcasts, Thinkfluence. What, if anything, will rescue the business of journalism? Two of my favorite industry voices dispense some quality existential angst for us. This will be fun. Do you hear me? Full disclosure, stay with us. Broadcast of Full Disclosure made possible by Health Warrior, a food and movement brand that believes better health will build a stronger society. It's their mission to inspire healthy diet and exercise habits, fueling that momentum with their radically convenient superfoods. I highly recommend their chia bars, especially mango and apple cinnamon. And by Elwood Thompson's. Aspiring to feed the heart and soul of our community through local and organic food, Elwood Thompson's since 1989 at the top of Richmond's Carytown. Joining us from NPR's Manhattan studios is Joshua Topolsky, who until last summer was Bloomberg's top digital editor. He co-founded The Verge and Vox Media. He DJs, he podcasts, he's soulful. I believe you are a Forbes Power 50 digital media thinkfluencer. Am I, am I right? If that's a thing, sure, why not? All right. Thank you for schlepping in from Brooklyn. And David Folkenflick, NPR's very well-sourced media correspondent. Who loves you, D? Uh, apparently you do. I'm delighted to join you, man. Long-time listener, first-time caller. Excellent, excellent. Jump ball on the Tribune unsolicited bid from Gannett. I thought Gannett was left for dead after the the old Gannett kind of left the, the print business, spun it out. Um, they focused on TV stations, which get fat off of local election advertising. And I didn't know that they were in any position to go out and roll out this troubled legacy newspaper conglomerate that's coming off of several bankruptcies. So, so what gives? You want to take a stab at this? Or sure. Well, I mean, it, look, uh, there's no question but that the spinning off of Gannett, which is the newspaper division, from the rest of Gannett's uh, broadcast holdings was an attempt to keep the value and quality of the broadcast uh, properties, which were much more likely to mint money. I was at a uh, conference, I think it must have been a year and a half ago, uh, which I had the CEOs of uh, of uh, McClatchy, of Gannett, of the New York Times Company, and the publisher uh, of the Washington Post, uh, uh, Catherine Weymouth, was there as well. And the CEO of Gannett promised me that they had no intention of, of selling off their newspaper division. And of course, subsequently, she, she did just that, and she stuck. Oh, was that Gracia? Yeah, she stuck yeah. with the broadcast side. Mm-hmm. Why? Because that was the more uh, uh, profitable thing. Now, Gannett was done one favor in that it was spun off essentially debt-free. It was done a disservice by not being given really a, a padding like Rupert Murdoch gave his uh, publishing side when he split 21st Century Fox from News Corp. He, he gave their essentially an endowment, you could almost think of as, to give them some running room and some leeway. But if you're thinking that Gannett was totally left for dead, you know that may have been not paying attention. One of the things that's interesting about Gannett is that although it owns some big papers in places like Phoenix and Detroit, Des Moines, uh, Louisville, maybe a decent 
decent sized paper. It really has had success with its smaller properties where they've been able to deeply, deeply cut costs and also to offer a, a service that in markets that may not really be be well served by other media properties, uh, public radio perhaps accepted. Uh, and uh, uh, so they, they've actually had some desire to expand this. What they've tried to do is create what they're calling now the USA Today Network, creating essentially a national insert or national publication that within their local dailies as a way of building value, but also a way of amortizing costs throughout all of their properties. And they've made some strides to add to what they've done lately. They bought the Milwaukee uh, Journal Sentinel and a couple other papers as well. They see this as a time where since they don't have debt, it's cost nothing to borrow money if they need to right now. And they see this as a time as why don't we build a bit? What's unusual about it is that you're talking about some major papers. Los Angeles Times, one of Chicago the most important, Tribune, largest papers. The Sun Sentinel Chicago Tribune, Fort Lauderdale. Yeah. My old paper, the Baltimore Sun. These are some storied papers. Do they still uh, own the Hartford it, Current? They do, and oh, that wow. has a terrific uh, tradition as Old well. History, now, Tribune right. Publishing also hived off from Tribune Broadcast. But I think what you're seeing here is going to be a question of whether you can meld, if they're even successful, Tribune Publishing has tried to hold them off, but if they can meld a small market success strategy onto a, a larger, uh, m more in some ways prestigious market uh, uh, story that's been really confused over at Tribune. I, you know, uh, my take on this, just from a little bit of personal experience with both sides, I, I know some people at Tribune and Gannett, um, they're both looking for, uh, uh, you know, clearly looking for a way forward. I do think, you know, to your point, the smaller newspapers married to some of those more prestigious, um, well-known, really national brands. I mean, LA Times isn't really can be considered a national brand at this point. I think that makes a lot of sense. The question is, Tribune, having just gone through what I think of as having just gone through these massive changes, are they in a position, do you think that there's any sense, besides this kind of like brute force attack on like, hey, here's a bunch of money, is there any sense that they would want to do this? I don't get the impression that they would that they want to be part well, of it. Well, didn't we so keep this, hearing, didn't we keep hearing that there was going to be a, a billionaire in, in waiting out west, either it was, you know, Ellie Broad or or um, you know David Geffen to finally take the storied Los Angeles Times off Tribune's hand. There's always been this disconnect between Chicago and L.A. And, and and Dean Baquet was at the L.A. Times back in the day, and all these editors chafed at all these orders coming in from you know the Midwest. Like you don't understand it. We're competing with the New York Times and the Washington Post and these other papers. If we step back. The Washington Post is owned by a guy worth $30 billion in Jeff Bezos. Uh, Boston Globe right. has been hived off of the New York Times. It's owned by, is it John Henry, a billionaire commodities That's trader? Right. right. The New York Times is out there. It, it, it still has a nominally wealthy family behind it. But the idea is, is that a foundation or a family or a magnanimous Los Angelino with money to burn and who could sustain losses could sustain uh, the kind of environment that the Los Angeles Times needs. You know, you've seen people certainly in Los Angeles have wanted the Tribune Company to sell off the Times. Uh, it was acquired only in the year roughly 2000, the turn of the century, uh, and it was not a happy union. Uh, L.A. being the more prestigious, the bigger paper, and the Tribune Company based at Tribune Tower out in Chicago didn't, you know, still wanted to think of the Tribune as the flagship paper and the most important property. In L.A., you've seen a number of publishers and editors try to make the case uh, either externally or internally at Tribune that that they should sell off the L.A. 
Times for the best interest of Southern Californians and Angelinos out there. And as a Southern Californian, I, I see the appeal to that. But that doesn't mean the Tribune Company sees value, or the Tribune Publishing now sees value in doing that. You know, there's this very interesting internal corporate uh, tension that that flared into the open over the last year or so, uh, where in LA, uh, Austin Butner, who had been uh, a political figure and a venture capitalist installed as the publisher of the LA Times, sought to build, to map out a Southern California strategy. So they acquired the San Diego uh, Union Tribune and said, you know, we're going to build, we've got bookends for Southern California. And they sought under their new ownership and the new CEO of Tribune, uh, Jack Griffin, to acquire the Orange County Register and the, the Riverside uh, Press Enterprise, uh, two other major papers uh, in between LA and San Diego. Well, federal regulators scotched that. And the new investor that the CEO, Jack Griffin of Tribune Publishing, had brought on board to give him the capital to be able to make these acquisitions, the chairman bounced that CEO out and said, I, I want to run this ship entirely myself. So it is not clear to me that uh, the Tribune knows what to do now that it's uh, uh, its Southern California strategy has been so badly impeded by federal regulators, and it's not clear to me that Tribune knows what to do. The appeal of this, to answer Josh's question, is that when Gannett came in, $815 million doesn't, to me, sound like a whole lot of money for all those big papers in the Tribune publishing. But it's a very it's diminished a, empire. I mean, it's been through right, bankruptcies. Right, but, it's been through debt cycles now. It's, it's kind of what's left. You're exactly right. I mean, a decade ago, the Philadelphia Inquirer and Daily News went for about 600 some million dollars on their own. This is a much bigger empire, but it's a 63% premium over what the shares traded for last Friday afternoon. So clearly, Gannett is saying to shareholders, we're willing to make an offer that you might have to ram down management's uh, throat. And the investors may say, we don't really want to do this, that is the private investors, but at least they'll come out making a big profit in a relatively modest Well, Josh, Josh, before, right? I, before I get you in on this, before you chime yeah. in on it, I want to cite your okay. beautiful essay in Medium this week, which hit, I think, roughly concurrent with when this Tribune News hit. Your media business will not be saved. Uh, and this, this, this graph struck me, right? What's the problem, you ask? The problem is that we used to have a really neat and tidy version of a media business where very large interests controlled vast swaths of the things we read, watched, and listened to, because that system was built on the concept of scarcity and locality, the limits of what was physically possible. It was very easy to keep the gates and fill the coffers. Put simply, there were far fewer players in the game with far fewer outlets for their content, so audiences were easy to sell to and easy to come by. Then digital, then you and me. And all of a sudden, all those old fixed channels started folding apart. Papers didn't sell. Magazines died. This is now 15 years of this going on, right? Craigslist, yeah. you talk about Monster.com. All of the profit centers of the newspaper industry have just been collapsed. So, again, are these guys, to your mind, if we just take the L.A. Times in isolation, you know, what, what do they gain from another conglomerate? Maybe, you know, this time it's an Eastern Seaboard newspaper conglomerate coming in. What are they going to get? Better prices on print? Uh, purchasing economies? I mean, uh, are they sharing studios? Yeah. I understand they have Joanne Lippman, who was a, a, a star figure at the Wall Street Journal. She went on to start Portfolio magazine at Condé Nast that didn't work. But do they, do they get something that maybe the LA Times under the Tribune doesn't get? Together, you're saying if Tribune and Gannett are joined together, does the LA Times get something? Is that is that the question? What is the LA Times? I mean, again, there, you can squeeze out all of the costs out of this business, economies of scale, distribution routes. I mean, again, what is what is this buying them? I was always under the impression that the LA Times was looking for a savior, someone to kind of infuse money into it the way Jeff yeah. Bezos did with the Washington Post or the well, commodities trader did with the Boston Globe. Not another, you know, cross country conglomerate. 
LA Times is not in control of its destiny, right? Tribune is in control of the LA Times destiny sure. right now. And Gannett doesn't get them anymore in control of their destiny, nor does it give Tribune any further ability to control their destiny. And so the question you have to ask is, what should an LA Times be or what does it need to be? Because to most humans who encounter the LA Times, and this is not, we're not talking about people who live in Los Angeles, I mean, that's where it's most prevalent and important. But they're not thinking of their network of other properties that are associated with the LA Times. They're sure. thinking only of that and its stories uh, and and what it and what it puts out into the world. I mean, is, does Tribune want the question you have to ask is like, what do the people who've spent the money to keep Tribune going want Tribune to be? Do they want it to be a business that's part of Gannett? Do they want LA Times to be spun off? I would say that's definitely not the case. I mean, my guess is. And I've had some conversations with some of the people at Tribune and at the LA Times. Um, they want to build a meaningful new business with uh, the pieces of the Tribune empire that they have. And they believe, I think a lot of, and this is what Gannett is thinking, that they also believe that there is a meaningful business that can be built that's worth far more than it's worth right now. And so um, I think 800, what is it, 815 million may seem very good compared to the stock price, but probably seems very small compared to the vision and the designs that the, the people who have money behind the Tribune are, are imagining. Now, Josh, if David Geffen were to bring you in, I'm just curious. Let's let's storyboard yes. this. Um, like, okay. I'm going to pay you as a consultant. I want you to bring your you know portable alpha out to the West Coast. I'll give you an unlimited expense account at In-N-Out Burger or whatever you want, mm. Chateau okay. Marmont, whatever the heck it is. Yes, uh, we're going to rip you out good. of Brooklyn for a while. What would you do? How would you reinvent it? Of course, you came into Bloomberg and took a pair of cold eyes uh, Look at their website. Um, you know, this was a company that was built around the terminal and the ecosystem of the terminal. The LA Times is decidedly print and SoCal, and they doubled down with Orange County and all these other things. But they also maintain some national aspirations. So, what would you yeah. say at first blush? Well, first off, didn't they just win a Pulitzer? I mean, so they're not—they're not, they're not consistently—they're they, not totally—you know—they're not blowing it in terms of the quality of the content they make. But I would say that there has to be. Um, I, and I don't know, I can't speak to the internal affairs of what they're doing from a technology perspective or from a digital perspective, but I wouldn't say that there is a strong foot forward on leading the way in digital. I mean, if you look at the LA Times versus the New York Times, just in the work they've done in making a statement that they are a destination and a meaningful player to a newer audience, I mm. think the New York Times has done a much has made a much better argument, right? So I think if I were to come in, if we're just talking about the LA Times, you know, internally, the workflow, the, the mindset, the mentality has to shift to we are an, a na an national and international brand. And how do we make a, a name and a way for ourselves every day in digital? I mean, that would be, of course, my first pass, but I'm a digital guy, right? right? I don't think that the newspaper business is totally dead, but I do think that it's increasingly a luxury. And I think that the people who will subscribe to a newspaper um, are the kinds of people who, who engage in other luxury activities or support other luxury um, uh, segments of a, of a market, like people who buy vinyl, right? Mm. I'm not sure that printing in an LA Times every day makes a lot of sense in the grand scheme of, of what, what I think the future looks like for people who want to read the news. I do think there's some value to printing in LA Times, though. It's just a question of what that looks like in the new world. I could only give you my armchair critique, which is that they certainly don't feel digital enough nor do other Tribune brands, nor do Gannett brands, for that matter. You know, the USA Today, which is a very large. Uh, well, I mean, how what's the circulation of the USA Today? Is it the most, uh, most read, second most read? It's, uh, it's it's among the top few. Right. It still doesn't feel like a digital, like a digitally native 
uh, or modern You know, and then what they have not been able to shake off is I stayed, I was on assignment uh, last week, and I was put up in a Best Western in North Carolina, and there I go with USA Today. I mean, they they tried to push out this advertising campaign before the the broader parent company spinoff of the papers a couple years ago that were just not a hotel thing. They bring in Michael Wolf, who you've had a spirited Uh, conversation over Twitter with, Josh. My favorite. He's my favorite. You know, we've had him on the show before. I mean, there were some serious chops there, you know, for the win. Their their sports coverage is great, but I largely enjoy it at hotels, and I see it on the Twitters. That's because it's being, it's because somebody hands it to you at a hotel. You don't go out and get it. I don't I mean, know when I would under, get it. It slipped under your door, right? I mean, you're talking about the paper they give you at a hotel, correct? Sure. But by the way, I think their print, what they've done with print is actually pretty interesting. I think from a design perspective, they've taken some risks that other papers have not. And I think that has paid off somewhat. But, you know, it's interesting. I mean, I think about a modern audience and their relationship with a USA Today or an LA Times for that matter. They Most of them don't have a relationship. And so what makes... Well, my what only relationship, those... if I if I may say, I like the smell of the Michael Wolf napalm on Monday mornings. That's all I that's all I need from USA Today, and that's probably my willingness to pay. But, but you're I'm, a highly I'm specialized reader. You're not a normal person. You're like one of a couple of thousand. Yeah, I mean, I'm bizarre. The people I'm who really bizarre. love, but the people who really love to read Michael Wolf columns are like. There's a high percentage of them in this room. Sure, they're on Actually, the Upper West Side. Not, not in this room, not in this room. <laughs> but look, I mean, what, what that was was that was an attempt by, uh, I think, Larry Kramer to to signal to you know New York Yeah, and there was the subway, there was a subway exists. ad campaign. Right. You saw, you know, that, you saw was, the newspapers was the, everywhere. That, that, that they were around. I think the relationship between readers of, say, USA Today, even in this current age, is a little different than the relationship of readers, say, of the Los Angeles Times. Because the, the LA Times, even though it is been a great paper with national reach and international coverage ambitions has scaled back some. It still does some very good national and uh, you know some very good international coverage as well and has yeah. some terrific people there. But you know it's had to figure out how to be uh, – try to attempt to be the defining journalistic voice for California, which is such an important area uh, f- for the country and, and for the world in many ways. Uh, they have done some things digitally. They've tried – it's just I think there's been a lot of stutter steps. There have been efforts and pullbacks and, and you know so much turnover in leadership uh, both at the corporate level and the newspaper level that it's really had trouble I think maintaining – uh, forward momentum, even as some of the journalists have nonetheless done some very good work. But they they tried some things, often very brief-lived, with with verticals and different ways of covering things, ways of conceiving it. Their you know eternal scrolling of their front page looks different than it certainly did maybe a year or two ago. Oh, yeah. uh, their mobile is more mobile-focused. There there are ways in which they have endeavored to do things that I think are beyond what I would say Gannett's properties have done to, in a significant I, way. Yeah, I don't. That disagree. may not be the highest bar to clear. Well, but in I on the design front, just I will say digital. And I'm a little biased, but Code and Theory, you know, who I've worked with on many projects, worked on on a redesign and a rethink of the LA Times, which I thought when I saw it was one of the best, most forward-thinking designs for a modern newspaper website, right? And so they have. I'm not saying they haven't done anything, they haven't, but the, but what I would say is, you know, if you're asking, this is you know, the, the hypothetical is what does Josh do, right? What Josh does is try to figure out what's the digital strategy for what is the real digital strategy, because to your point, Dave, what you're saying is. There have been some, you know, fits and starts and like things have happened, but it hasn't been a continuous march forward. I think it needs that continuous march, but I also think it needs all of those people who are involved in making the paper to feel that they are a part of something that is does actually have a much bigger reach. And that's very hard to do. I mean, it's very hard to do in newsrooms is to get people who've worked at a paper for 20 years to start thinking about their product as something larger. But, you know, LA needs its 
there needs to be a counterpart to, to the New York Times. And LA Times has done, I think, some pretty admirable work in being that. I think there's just a lot more runway. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. Uh, what makes this episode different from all other episodes? Well, we're having a Talmudic discussion about the journalism business. Uh, joined in New York City at NPR Studios by David Fulkenflik, uh, the media correspondent, and of course, Joshua Topolsky, who's in stealth mode right now, but very much in demand. I wanted to ask you, Josh, uh, you know, while we have you here, this this rarefied air, we, we, we actually got Topolsky in studio. Uh, the, the question that you're accosted with at every party that you attend in Greenpoint or wherever the heck you run with. Mostly Greenpoint. Mostly Greenpoint or Red Hook or uh, yeah. Gowanus. I don't know. Wherever people's beards are, that's yes, where yes. I'm at. Um, yeah. Does Bloomberg need a public-facing website? Does it even need a website? Need is a strange word. I mean, uh, does anybody need anything? I mean, you know, uh, shelter, some clothes, a little bit of food. Bloomberg doesn't need – that's not their core business. I mean, their core business is the terminal, which makes a lot of money. Uh, every year and has been making a lot of money for a long time. Um, Bloomberg, I think, wants a media business. And, uh, you know, in the way that, say, Jeff Bezos wants a media business and a lot of other interested parties will invest in and spend time on and uh, nurture a media business. So, you know, is it is it core to, I mean, it, does the media business help them get terminal customers? I think it can in some very rare cases. And I think in the in the grand scheme of things, uh, it's its own beast and it needs to be treated as such. And that's, you know, that's what I was working on when I was there. And that's what a lot of other people are still working on now. Um, but I think you've got, it's a place that that certainly has some um, sides that are not always aligned. You know, the terminal business is a very different business than than a consumer facing. Just, just for our listeners to understand, I mean, the terminal business, the bread and butter of the company, which is almost like nine tenths of its business, is is selling these terminals largely to investors and traders, Wall Street people. I used one in my first job out of college in the brokerage business. It's it's roughly twenty two thousand dollars a year, and you get this panoply of very proprietary data. Uh, and Matthew Winkler. Uh, when he left the Wall Street Journal, he started bringing in some reporters to kind of break news. If you could get that edge uh, and bring in a guy who knew the oil rig business very well, then then clients of Bloomberg would be extra keen to pay for that information. And that has since morphed into them right. acquiring my old haunt, Business Week. Uh, they've doubled down on TV, on radio. Um, uh, you know, things that have you read in the press that they've just been big drains on money and it's like marketing yeah. expense, but will never move the needle at a company that ultimately lives and dies by its terminal revenue. It's easy to imagine a media site making money and turning a profit. That's fine. That's very easy to do. It's hard to imagine because the the um, the margins are so great and the revenue is so enormous from the terminal side. It's such a specialized business for such a specialized user, uh, it's hard to imagine that the media business will ever compare to that. Um, it's not impossible, but it requires a kind of patience and rigor that can be ugly. You know, I mean, like think about it, building it from uh, uh, not turning a profit, from not being uh, a revenue generator to something that is, is, a, is a bloody process. And that's what, that's what Bloomberg's going through. And that's what, you know, I was trying to help with it at, in the time that I was there. I don't think it's impossible, but I do think, you know, on different days, I'm sure that, that people there, executives at Bloomberg would tell you different things about what they want the business to be. And I think that's a, that is not something that just happens at Bloomberg. That is something that happens at every large business, media focused and otherwise, that I've ever had a chance to take a look inside but, of. But you and have so, to admit, David, I mean, there seems to be, at least in, in the last five years, an ideal 
uh, newspaper magazine owner. Like again, I'll go back to Jeff Bezos. He's worth what thirty billion dollars. If he buys the Washington Post for two hundred and fifty million dollars, he's not going to agonize over cost centers and should we put reporters on special assignment. I mean, if he's going to put out the the Fire Phone or whatever it is and fail. At Amazon, where he's not even measured on core profitability largely by Wall Street, he's not going to care about this diversion or, or you know, his rocket. That's the kind of owner, you know, tortured transition here to bring it back to the New York Times, which you were able to respond to this New York Post piece that ran uh, over the weekend or early in the week that said that the New York Times is bracing for another round of layoffs this year. This is not a company that's owned by a billionaire family. They had to cut the dividend in recent years. They're kind of the last of the big independents. They have mouths to feed in terms of dividends, and they've held off from kind of selling the company a la Washington Post or a Boston Globe. So to take it back like to this, this fantasy, Mike Bloomberg is not running for president right now. You get asked about this ad nauseum, I'm sure. Is mm-hmm. this what he ultimately wants? Do these, do these two great properties really need each other at this point, Bloomberg and the New York Times? I don't think Bloomberg needs the New York Times. And I'm not sure the Times would be the perfect fit. I'm sure Bloomberg would have loved to have picked up the Financial Times or the Wall Street Journal. I think that would have made him pretty happy to fold that into Bloomberg at some point. Uh, that said, I think that he also you know, is a very canny businessman. And so he thinks about what's available. And of those properties, uh, uh, given that the Financial Times was just sold to a Japanese uh, concern. At a ridiculous multiple of cash flow. I mean, it's pretty unbelievable. If I were the Times, I'm thinking, sell it while the selling's good. Well, not to mention the price that Rupert Murdoch paid for the Wall Street and Journal. And he wrote down he a ton of that there. Right. Within a year. That's right. So I think that there is this desire to, to imagine a world in which uh, Bloomberg swoops in with a cape. If you think of the Bezos model, you know, Bezos has been a terrific owner for the Post. It has insulated it from anxiety. It's given it an incredible glide path to figure out what it's doing. And it's also plugged it into a world of analytics, of forward thinking, about uh, the use of data, about the, the way in which uh, tech Technology can be harnessed to uh, both acquire information, to convey information, to gather information about your users, about how they use it, and to use that in meaningful ways in journalism, not simply for clickbait. So Bezos has been good that way. He's also allowed the newsroom to make some additional investments. I don't get the sense that he doesn't care what the cost is. I mean, he may spend maybe an hour or two every two weeks on the post because he has such vast holdings over at Amazon, you know, which he runs as well as founded. But He's not just cutting completely blank checks without regard to it. He's a very data-driven, analytical guy. If you think about John Henry up in Boston, you know, who has been a very, I think one could say, benevolent, public-spirited owner of the Boston sure. Globe, and they have done wonderful work under him. Uh, he also owns the Boston Red Sox. So you know, he's a guy who has a lot of civic life sort of under his umbrella. John Henry, his newsroom has had to acknowledge reality. So you've seen a series of memos in the last, call it, 18 months from Brian McGrory, the excellent executive editor up there, who said, we have to rethink the globe uh, and think about what it would be if we were creating it from scratch, the kind of uh, exercise that Josh engages in all the time because Josh is so digitally focused and forward-looking as opposed to you know holding on the nostalgia for what's past. Brian McGrory up there is saying, we have to think about how we would build this, how we would get the news that is vital to Boston and, and our, our corner of New, New England, uh, and not simply about what it is we were in the past. Now, those are some harsh financial realities. Sure. In the meantime, John Henry is investing in this, uh, in STAT, this new health and biosciences-oriented digital-only news site that nonetheless, uh, whose content flows into the globe, but it is separately organized. It is under a separate structure. It doesn't have the same union protection and rules. Uh, I went up there and profiled them on on their week of launch because I was very interested in this. And because of the 
welter of firms up there related to medicine, related to health sciences, related to bioengineering uh, and the like. He thinks that there could be a global or at least national audience, industry audience for this news based somewhat regionally. But that's unproven. But he was willing to put additional resources there. He's looking at the Boston Globe and he sees that as a shrinking pot. Even a benevolent billionaire isn't necessarily running it without regard for how those, th those figures are going to work. So even if a Mayor Mike were to come in, uh, as he's called in the Bloomberg uh, newsroom, uh, and decide, I'm going to take care of the New York Times, and I'm going to give the Salzburger extended family so much money that they decide to turn their shares over to me. And let's say it's folded into the Bloomberg world. I think you're going to see severe costs. I think he's going to see the uh, cut, that is. I think you're going to see him saying, I have a ton of journalists already. And I got to say, the standard of Bloomberg journalism is very high. They do some terrific work. It's just not necessarily as widely disseminated as uh, as those at their competitors. And so he's going to cut back costs. And I think that's something that the Salzburgers are, are very aware of. I've talked to people who have helped Bloomberg uh, essentially kick the tires uh, of the New York Times. That is really examine the books and try to figure out what would it be worth to pay for this? What costs could we save? And you know, these are some very hard-headed decisions. So the Salzburgers would have to decide they're okay with their legacy being a reduced size of New York Times employees in order to assure its future financial viability under different ownership. Now, the New York Times is protected. You know, the family that owns it, the Salzburgers, this is a quasi-public company. They have super voting shares. The market capitalization, if you pull up NYT on Yahoo Finance or something, it's $2 billion right now. It's not like buying the Washington Post for $250 million kind of in a you know handshake agreement behind the scenes, which gives you a lot of margin for safety if you're Jeff Bezos, which, which you know, you're not you're not spending the majority of this investment on taking out the family and making the the cousins whole with dividends and whatnot. So this is already an enormous enterprise. But then you see headlines like this. I mean, Dean Baquet said recently, the uh, editor of the New York Times, that we can't keep turning things on without shutting some things off. And hence, you see this news: the New York Times shutting its. Paris headquarters of its international edition, and maybe that's creative destruction. But on the other end of that, Josh, you see um, some investments here. For example, they bring in Kinsey Wilson from NPR, who was a digital star. Um, he's there uh, uh, building a podcast empire, hopefully, I would hope. You see Meredith Coppett-Levian building the brand studio, the ad agency, if you will, within the New York Times. There are some moonshots internally, but you would imagine that they would get a chance to do things like this if they had uh, a more patient owner and did not have to deal with Wall Street analysts and cousins, you know, making sure that that 16 cent quarterly dividend is paid consistently. Yes, I think you could imagine that things would be easier if they had a bunch of money and nobody who is a pain in their ass. I think the problem is that, uh, to, to David's point, that the money is going to come with something and it won't just be just be the best New York Times you can be. It will be here's what I think the New York Times should be. You know, from who, whether it's it's Mike Bloomberg or or another billionaire somewhere. Um, most of those the the kind of person who wants to own a newspaper like the New York Times um, certainly loves a lot about it, but would presumably imagine they could improve some things about it. I think that to the point that David made about this this memo in the in the in the was a Boston Globe newsroom that. You know, imagine if we were starting from scratch. I think that's the most. If your editor says that, you're in the right place. I think that's the most. Um, but it's become cliche almost because who can well, imagine no, but, that? Like if you're the New York Times well, starting from scratch today, you can't yeah. just shut off the printing presses. That brings in the lion's share of your cash flow. You have oh, a unionized right. workforce. You have bureaus. You have to pay for flak jackets, reporters in Syria and Iraq. You can't just go digital all the time right now. Not well, at least I mean, yet. You, 
it's not about even just going digital, but I think that thinking of your business as something that has to be created now and not something that you have to keep um, uh, putting life support into is a really, it's a different mindset. I, I'm not talking about like, yeah, you just kill the printing press and then everything's okay. That's not, you know, that's obviously not the answer. But I think walking into the newsroom and saying, your belief, if you're in this newsroom, if you're part of this business and a belief that you can do it the way we've always done it, that if that's your starting point, that's that's the wrong place to start. You're right. From. Joshua right. writes, it will be bloody, bloody and violent and depressing. Content makers will die. They'll be bought up. They'll be split apart. Their TV networks will fail. Their partnerships will end. In fact, this is already happening. We'll have to learn a thousand hard lessons, most of them centered around the idea that if you want to make something really great, you can't think about making it great for everyone. So that is the that is the bind right now. And, and, and Josh, if you step back, all of the money that's been thrown at video, uh, you know, the likes of Mashable and BuzzFeed and, and you know, Vox, your old stomping grounds, uh, until yeah. recently it was looked at as video is going to be the savior of online journalism. Time Inc., the magazine empire that was uh, spun off kind of ignominiously, ignominiously, I never pronounced that correctly, from Time Warner. They say, don't look at us as a magazine company. We're a video company. Video, 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 video is where it's at. But there is a ton of video out there. There's just so oh, much of it. Swear? How is anybody making I didn't, money? I didn't know we could, I didn't we know could, we could beep you out. Podcast, baby. We, we, can't, we, we, cannot, we cannot mention NPR One, but we can swear. Uh, just okay, as long as you don't I... say any, just don't say NPR one. I'll beep that up. But anyway, go ahead and swear. Yes. <laughs> okay. Well, I mean, so what are you asking here? Is, is video? Why isn't? Why is? Yeah, video you're not, you're or, saying or in this in this heartfelt it? essay that video isn't saving us. I mean, until yeah. you saw no, Mashable I mean, not, came out. I mean, Mashable came out and shit canned all of its great journalists recently. I mean, Heidi Moore. There's a who's at the New York Times that they brought in Jim Jim Roberts Jim, Jim Roberts. Roberts like yeah, th- th- sure. these are these are not cheap talented people and and Pete Cashmore of Mashable they made a hard turn their VCs came in and well we're pivoting to video and yeah. and you know BuzzFeed's already big in video how many big video players can you have out there with billion dollar valuations you're saying this is certainly not the savior of journalism I think that the idea that a thing like video it can can fix what's wrong with your business like it can help to fix what's wrong with your business, but it is not, there is no magic. Like, I think to, what I was trying to convey in that in that thing that I wrote, which by the way, I wrote rather quickly in a, in a coffee shop um, after, you know, of course, thinking about this. By law. Yes, by law, it has to be written in a coffee shop. That is true. Uh, you know, is, is, is this idea in our industry, and by the way, that was, that piece was as much about traditional outlets as it was new outlets. I mean, and I hope that that is clear. Uh, this idea in our industry that getting the sh- bright, shiny new thing in your newsroom um, or pivoting to the thing that everybody keeps talking about in investor meetings is the answer to your problems. Like, that isn't the answer to your problems. The answer to, I really think at the core of it, yes, I say making better stuff and focusing on your product as a real product and doing all of these different things you can do. But really, at the core of it, what you have to say is, who's my audience? And how big is that audience? And what do I realistically have to do to get to them? We don't have a cap on audience with most of these businesses. That's part of our problem. We just say, uh, it could be everybody. There's 3 billion people online. Maybe it's all 3 billion people. Maybe I can sell ads against 3 billion uh, online customers because I can reach them. I've got Facebook and I've got Twitter and I've got Snapchat and all these other things. So they're out there. Digital gives me the path towards them. And the, But the reality is there's no infrastructure that is built for that. There's no way to make money off of that. Not really at this point. And, and the truth about human beings is that those those 3 billion people or 200 million aren't really your audience. Like some of them are, a lot of them happen to find you. Most of them 
don't really care about you or your brand. And and part of that is just a part of the game, but but a big part of it is that we've made things and we've we focused on making things that haven't been about um, cultivating mm. specific audiences. And to and that, I, to that the, end, I want I want to see David. Has anyone, to your mind, gotten out there and put out let's let's corner journalism, whatever it is, TV journalism, magazine journalism, print, digital, native media that there's a proven willingness to pay. And I'm not talking an advertiser cross subsidy, but your info, your intel, your analysis is so indispensable that people uh, will. Put up with your newsstand price increases or subscription increases. Is there any evidence that anybody's been able to pull that off amid this wrenching transition to whatever digital is? You know, the great problem is the great boon for us as uh, consumers, which is that I can uh, sit in my living room in New York and I can read about my baseball team, the Angels, in Southern California on any number of sites or blogs, uh, and I can read news from Europe and the Guardian or uh, you know. Lamond or whatever at a, at a click and just it'll ping up. And so I don't have to there, – there's nothing that is absolutely indispensable, right? I will say that there are major sources of information like the New York Times that have found that their price is pretty elastic. That I mean, I can tell you their, their seven-day-a-week subscription at home, they, they're just seeing how luxury a good this really is for a lot of people. Uh, their digital subscriptions, they've raised rates there too and they've, they've been very sensitive in the sense of – monitoring it, but they're not sensitive in the sense of apologizing for it. They're trying to figure out ways to pay for journalism. And Salzberger, early on, young Salzberger, uh, who's now not so young, early on said that he was agnostic as to what platform you get for the New York Times, but that he felt ultimately you were going to have to pay for it. And by the way, I think you're right. Some of it's free, but not all of it can be. If you think about Bloomberg, the kind of information that they provide or some of the professional analysis uh, that you get from the National Journal Group down in D.C., which are really targeted for people who are in industries where they're getting specialized information. So people with money, people with corporate expense accounts. People with money, but then you get expense accounts, people who very so you get on, that, signing right? up for People, WSJ.com. But then does that for, sustain the entire Wall Street Journal enterprise, for example, or the, the bigger media conglomerate above you know, National well, Journal? And part of the concern over at the Wall Street Journal is that Rupert Murdoch's desire to make it a slightly more general interest publication uh, and make it a little bit less obsessively focused about uh, business and finance and the backroom deals. They still do some good coverage of that, but there's less of a, a focus on that than there once was, makes it slightly less indispensable to the business and finance finance uh, uh, consumer. You know, if you look over at ESPN, what they've tried to do is protect, uh, even as they've getting increasing pressure on what they do and, and increasing concern about cord cutters. They're trying to swallow the market for the, the last great uh, thing on television, which is unscripted content that you don't know how it's going to end. And so all of these collegiate basketball games, right, all of these football games, uh, you know, the, the, the chief playoff games, they want to control the market on that because people will be willing to pay for it. But a huge and increasing portion of what they do revenue-wise, as I understand it, are these fantasy uh, leagues, the stats that are sliced a million ways because they can make it very simple for sure. you know people across the country to play in these leagues. People are trying to find ways that are supplemental because the really large indispensable things like the Times, I think, are able to do this with a very high prestige and also in small underserved communities, whether they're physically distant geographically or whether they're extremely niche subject markets that aren't being served much by general interest publications. Maybe those are able to charge for subscriptions or for online access because other people aren't 
aren't serving them. But I think in sure. the great middle, that great middle of uh, you know most newspapers, for example, uh, you, you're seeing a complication because you know as they've hollowed out their newsrooms, people say, you know what, I can get information other ways. I don't have to take the paper. I don't have to recycle it seven days a week. That's actually a great blessing. If you look at, for example, the LinkedIn's of the world, where there's just this this deluge, this ocean of quasi journalistic influencer content. I mean, it's constantly bombarding you. Um, and everybody out there, I think Forbes kind of broke this taboo originally when Forbes.com brought on contributors. It seems like people who can afford to be part-time journalists as loss leaders, they're not looking to make a living on it. They're executives or PR people. Um, they are Huffington at the, Post. The Huffington well, Post. They're just there's you know, an, a, oh yeah, an that's my that's this odyssey, this odyssey thing, which is like demand media quote. right for college. For, to, for college kids, and yeah, they, th- that's what I wanted to say. Million dollars. That's what their, I wanted to say business. earlier. It's like, do it for the exposure, honey. Do it for the exposure. We get bought out soon. I don't know if that that works. Is that Ariana? That's, that's, that's Ariana. the best Ariana. <laughs> I confuse her with Nouriel Rubini sometimes. It's like you know, sometimes the green shoot is going to be a fungus. It's not an economic recovery. It's a fungus. Uh, but anyway, <laughs> uh, you know, if I mash them up, but that's for another episode. Look, I think that you can probably build a model around uh, the doing the accents of various prominent commentators. Yeah, yeah, that's like a that, business. that would be a no, pain gentlemen. Model my my manifest destiny. My manifest destiny. Look, I'm the the great grandchild of uh, illiterate rug merchants in the Persian bazaar. I just think I'm going to have a food cart and I'm going to do my podcast as a loss leading thing. There's no money in this. Are you a good cook? Can you No, cook? no, but I'll learn, darn it. I mean, you but, know, but innovate, listen, innovate or die. But here's the thing, that's adapt or die is 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 my mantra. The other my other mantra is we've weaponized content, which is like what you're talking about is we we treat we treat this storytelling thing as like shoot as many bullets as possible and hope that you hit something. No and one has hit way, anything yet. No. And yet well, I read, people hit. You know, last people year, last year, of... I read Taneshi Coates's beautiful long dispatch in The Atlantic about identity and reparations. And I felt like I wanted to mail him a check. Right. Or I read this this uh, New Yorker investigation on Scientology several years ago, and I wanted to mail that correspondent or David Remnick a check like here, give this to your cub reporters. But then, you know, the late David Carr, the New York Times writes, what's what's sad and what's beautiful about this golden age of content is there's just so much of it. That twenty five thousand word dispatch in one of these glossy magazines is not just competing with written journalism. It's competing with my Apple TV, with my Netflix and chill with, you know, I want to I want to catch Rupert Dink, Humperdink, whatever right, his name is right. in. In Sherlock, Benedict Cumberbatch is his name. Sorry. So there's just so much. It's like sipping from a fire hydrant, and you bring in an enfant terrible like a Joshua Topolsky. And and the best I can imagine, you could tell some of these old media people is like, we just have to be creatively promiscuous. We have to try and we have to risk things uh, until we finally hit something, and it's going to be fraught with failure and doubt and layoffs. Listen, I think it'd be a nightmare to run the New York Times. Can I tell you to have to be all things, try to be all things to all people, or to run a massive news? I mean, to me, what I think is 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 most interesting right now is what is sort of most interesting in food, right? Which is like a farm to table, organic. There's all this experimentation going on. There are people who are obsessed with one type or another type, but they're but they're interested in a, in a kind of quality. And you have these like blocks and of people. By the way, I'm not a foodie at all. I could care less. I'll eat anything. Um, like I like ranch dressing, but uh, a lot. <laughs> but but what's interesting? The idea that like we've we've raised a generation of people who like buy Apple products and shop on Etsy because it's handmade and it's bespoke, and they go to farm to table restaurants and they. Really Really are like appreciative and obsessed with like pockets of culture, and and we're not building things for those 
individual audiences. We seem to be building things for really just the, like, like I said, those really big audiences. So, I mean, I don't know what the New York Times is supposed to look like. I think the New York Times is going to look a lot like the New York Times. They are really an anomalous case that we should not use as an example Many when we talk about these things because they are like probably the most well-known, most respected, most important news brand that has ever existed. I mean, it's hard. It's, but, I, you know, the I, I paradox, mean, I'm open to the paradox is if the family were to come in and cry uncle tomorrow, it's like, we don't see any visibility. We won't want to ram through another five rounds of layoffs. We're going to lift the super voting structure. You would see overnight the value of this company balloon because there is that it's the ultimate bauble for a billionaire, the most influential newspaper in the world. But the family still wants to hold on to it because of maybe some, you know, early 20th century nostalgia. Uh, they, they've had shareholder activists bother them over the years saying you should break the structure. Um, they've been through several cycles and throughout the value of the company has fallen. And you just wonder at some point, instead of experimenting to run this thing for cash flow and for dividends, why don't you just bring in a much wealthier person? I really wonder about that all the time. Let me answer in two ways, one of which is to say, you know, there is this uh, tension at the New York Times. I think you can make the case in some ways that the New York Times is hitting on all cylinders. I mean, it's digital report. I pay for the print edition because I live here in New York and I like to read a paper in print. But my God, their digital edition is actually so much richer than what you get in print and so much richer than any daily newspaper I've ever seen, really. I, I think I subscribe to the journal. I, I read The Guardian, Times of London, you know, other places. But nonetheless, it's it's a terrific report. And they reach more people than they ever have. They've had more subscribers than they ever had, thanks to digital, if I'm not mistaken. And they reach more readers than they ever had, thanks to the web and thanks to what they offer online. So that's an extraordinary opportunity. They also have as many journalists, more or less, as they've ever had as big a newsroom. But the definition of that, what a journalist is, has really changed. And a lot of those people aren't holding what you would think of as con conventional roles. They're more in the question of formatting or processing information or figuring out ways to reach audiences. And those, those definitions are squishy. They are, as you alluded to, you know, thinking about hard how they're going to have to shrink their newsroom. The New York Post, as you alluded to, uh, said uh, they were going to possibly lay off as many as. By the way, I love. People. You know, when I lived in New York, I loved to pick up the New York Post and like a Zero's pretzel or bagel yeah, sure. on the Metro North and read these very thinly reported, um, you know, uh, kneecappings well, of, of Arthur Salzberger. It's just a fun. New York Post is losing a metric ton of money as well. I mean, it's pot kettle black in this case. New York Times is not losing money. The New York Post is in business exclusively because Rupert Murdoch wants to have that foothold in the uh, less reputable part of the market where he can reach people in a populist way and he can put in print the kind of stories he wants to see. This was a speculative piece. It was not utterly out of thin air, but a very speculative piece. Dean Baquet told me over the weekend that that he felt it was a cheap guesswork, uh, that it was essentially made up. And, you know, I talked to other people. Does in both Dean Baquet, incidentally, does Dean, Dean Baquet call you when stuff like this happens? Like, David, get uh, out of bed. I, I don't know how it works. Or can you just call <laughs> him on call his cell phone? Order, not only does he call you, does he order you to do something? Did he punch? Uh, quite, did he punch quite, through a wall when you when you mentioned this? Or does he ask you to, to describe things as muscular? <laughs> when, <laughs> Your turn, Robin. Go ahead. Uh, go ahead. What I was going to say was was actually quite the opposite. Uh, he was uh, good enough to respond to me on email oh. on, on a Sunday. So uh, in this case, they're trying to figure it out. They don't know what cuts they're going to need in parks. They don't know how well or how poorly a lot of their new ventures are going to fare, and they're trying to figure it out. But they're definitely going to be cutting some costs, but they, they are 
very hopeful it won't be anything like as cataclysmic. If they were to cut 200 jobs, that'll still get them down to where they were after, uh, I guess, two layoffs ago. You know, so they've expanded back, which is what they tend to do. They they kind of are like uh, you know going on NutraSlim or something. You, sure. you you slim down and then you expand back. Uh, if to think about this and compare it to the Washington Post, if I'm not mistaken, the Post company was a publicly traded company, but it too was controlled by the the, the Graham family and 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 Kathy. But that all was uh, measured. That was measuring Williams, Kaplan you know. earnings. Kaplan was the profit center. It gets a little inside baseball, but there's always been a profit center that would subsidize. This is getting a little inside baseball. Just the whole now? thing is that uh, you know on that on that but, note, I do want to say we're talking to Joshua Topolsky and. David Folkenflik of NPR. They're both joining us from NPR's New York City studios. These are mega Manhattan media machers. Um, that's not onomatopoeia. Is that alliteration? It's impressive alliteration. I'm, uh, I just make it up as I go along. I but think I you're <laughs> making this up, I was going to say. At that's what this is. I do want to take a hard turn uh, to this here medium of podcasting. And you, you do it, Joshua. You're out there. I think I've seen you on Spotify. Is that right? Uh, it's, I hope. Can I you hope get you me picked up from, from Spotify? I'm on all these podcasts. just call them. They'll do it. They'll do it. I don't They're know who picky. to call. It's They'll like put this... anything on there. They'll all put right. Anything. Well, that's what I, <laughs> that's what I want to get at. Because you're, you, are, you are an NPR studio, so be very careful over there. I know Jarl yeah, Moen is, yeah. is down in D.C. And David wants to keep his job. I love David's byline. Don't go anywhere, man. But how is NPR – this is a really hard turn. How is NPR going to navigate to digital? It's been written about a lot lately that this is an organization, very, very storied, has huge listener loyalty, but is ultimately accountable to its affiliates. And, you know, when I got a 2012 car and it came Bluetooth equipped with my uh, iPhone and I wasn't using that much of my digital plan to stream Spotify or you know NPR or Pandora or anything, it completely obviated the need for me to have an FM AM tuner in my car. Sure, I was carrying sure. my radio around everywhere. So how do you how do you reconcile that with a world where you need to keep your affiliates and their antennas and their stations in business? David, I feel like you probably have thought about sure. this. I'm interested to hear what Josh has to say, but let me offer a couple thoughts. First, as I say in all such situations, I'm uh, happily paid by NPR, but I do not speak for the institution. So I'm happy to offer my thoughts as a guy who covers media and covers NPR perhaps a little more closely than, than many. Uh, what I would say is that you know NPR was a laggard in dealing with digital issues for many years and then really became a great innovator, a laboratory for a lot of experiments, some of which worked, some of which didn't, some of which worked financially, some of which didn't. But a lot of innovation and creativity was unleashed both digitally online uh, in terms of uh, what we did with mobile but also in terms of the kinds of content we presented. So what you've seen is that people realize – people are saying, oh, my god, radio is dying. And the question is, well, how are you going to define radio? Now, there's terrestrial radio, which is what you receive on your FM dial uh, or AM dial, and I like it a lot. I mean, I go around the country and I help raise money for stations all over. I believe in them. I enjoy them. Like, I dig it. I learn stuff from them. They're, they're really cool uh, reporters and editors, producers, hosts. Uh, and they're Their loyalty to the profit centers, unmatched. their morning edition and all things considered. And, and you, for example, you could hang a shingle as, you know, the Folk and Flick Media Hour. And I'm sure a great media sponsor would come out there and you... You know, you hook up your MacBook and a couple of Blue Yeti things. It's, this is the problem is that everybody's coming out with a podcast every 
day. Like Forbes is doing 150 of them. Yeah, but I Forbes is doing a, 150 of all kinds of crap that nobody cares about. I, I think it's not to David, not to cut you off, but I just want to say NPR has this weird, like what I actually think if you look at it, you have, what a weird, amazing advantage because they're already making people pay for it. They're asking, hey, would you pay money for this? And people go, yeah, I'll pay money for that. So you have an, a built-in audience that actually really loves and is obsessed with what NPR provides, which is, you must admit, uh, is highly differentiated in the grand scheme of like what you can get. Yeah, there are a lot of podcasts. Um, I think the future of NPR is they'll be a part of all, a lot of the great podcasts and the other people will make things that have nothing to do with NPR. And there's a, there are audiences for a lot of that stuff, not all of it, but a lot of it. But one thing NPR has proven for a long time is that their audience will pay actual money. But Joshua, uh, define that audience. What about the 20 and 30 somethings that get their stuff over streaming, that are podcast centric, that get it on iTunes, that go to Marketplace and other places? I mean, the, the guys who broke off, the I mean, apostates HBO, of NPR. HBO does Game of Thrones. I mean, you know, they've been around forever. They make Game of Thrones. Like, is there a more relevant piece of entertainment that exists right now for 20-somethings than Game of Thrones? Probably not. But are 20 so, and 30-somethings going to cut a check to their affiliate during the fund drive? I mean, that's that's uh, that's the question. Here. I think I think um, cut a check and fund drive are two things that have the words have to change. I think you're going to see things like buttons uh, that people can press or a text that they can send uh, to a station. One you know. of those Amazon. Um, I think you, you're going you know, to look. You're raising real issues, right? Our board has a slight majority of station managers, which I've always identified as an interesting place because the stations both pay us for the programs that we produce and send to them. So there are clients, uh, but there are also our uh, are in a sense our bosses or among our bosses on that board, and that that is that that tension that you're talking about. It does make it harder for NPR as a network and institution to pivot nimbly and say, okay, now we're doing this digitally. No, we really got to bring people along, and we got to figure out ways to do it collaboratively, and that is both a strength and a weakness. However, you know the relationship uh, when. Uh, Arthur Salzberger uh, Jr. announced the paywall for the New York Times this time around. They had a couple of abortive attempts earlier on uh, over the last 20 years, but this time that the, the one that really ended up working for them. He said to me, we kind of view this like the NPR public radio model. Mm. I sat down with him in, I guess, the Churchill room over there at the Times building. I said, well, what do you mean by that? Mm. And he said, you guys get about 10 percent of your listeners contribute money voluntarily there is no requirement that content will still come over the radio, but 10% of your audience contributes at some level to your stations. He said, if we got 5 or 6%, we think it would be a dazzling success. So I'm not saying – I agree with you about fundraising mm -hmm. drives. I think WBUR, our, uh, one of our major stations in Boston, did this drive where instead of doing it over the course of a week or two, they did it over the course of a day and got you know a huge uh, percentage of, of, of their overall uh, target for that time. I think there are going to be different means that will take advantage of digital technologies. I think you may see new ways that the national network figures out how to fundraise better. But – Planet Money tried an experiment where it raised hundreds of thousands of dollars to support a, an, a global a storytelling effort where we sent our people around the world to every point along the way in the process of creating a T-shirt that you get on your back. And uh, so I'm going to get you a raise right now, David. How many unsolicited job offers do you get a week? Because everybody is calling around now. Slate is doing this. The New York Times is doing it. Oh, sure. Forbes wants to double down. Time Inc. is doing it. I mean, Spotify, Acast, BuzzFeed. My wife left NPR where she was executive producer of the show Ask Me Another to help out in creating what is effectively a podcasting division at Audible, which is a component of Jeff Bezos' Amazon. Uh, you're seeing – Yeah, Panacle, which is started by which an is... NPR exec, David, uh, uh, Eric Nuzum. 
That's right. Right, which is that he's at the helm of of. So it's it's just a fascinating. I know it was a hard turn from newspapers, but talking about something is flourishing out there in this golden age of content. It is the podcasting era, and everybody's doing it. And at the point where my mom contacts me and says, "I want to start a podcast about my you know cosmetology business," that's when I'm going to leave journalism proper and get into the Persian yeah. food cart. Business. And let me let me let me just offer you one thought on this, though. You know, a lot of people have looked at this and said, "Well, this shows NPR's weakness in this in the space." And I think NPR is at a moment where it's trying to figure out. It's strategy and digital, and, and you know we're, we're wrestling with that in some ways. Have we done perfectly? Absolutely not. But we've also done some really good work at NPR, and I would say that in some ways it's because NPR has proven the intimacy of the medium, the fact that audio is mobile. You don't have to read while you're bicycling or you're on the on the subway. You can actually just listen to these things. There's an intimacy to it and a connection and a, a, a passion about it that people don't generally described, you know, as having toward their, say, their newspapers locally that I think other people want to emulate and grab hold of and say, we can do it and maybe we can do it better or maybe we can do it differently. A BuzzFeed podcast is going to sound very different than a Slate podcast, which sounds often different than an NPR podcast. All of those things are okay. Like I'm, I'm in favor of hearing what, what the world has to offer, but I think that's in some ways a power to the intimacy of this very medium that, that all three of us are talking on right now, which is you know, the spoken word and the conversation and the storytelling uh, in, instead of simply uh, you know, written prose that's been edited by people in uh, Towers in New York. Josh Topolsky, last thought. You have a minute. Wow. Uh, well, we covered a lot of ground today. Uh, I think my last thought is that my position on the media business and on, the, on this industry is not to be depressed or sad is actually to be hopeful and optimistic and excited. I think there's huge opportunity in this time of tremendous upheaval to find new ways of doing things and new ways of reaching an audience. That's what I'm interested in doing. That's what a lot of people I know are interested in doing. And I think in from the ashes of a lot of this destruction, you're going to find there are some brand new things that are built that are sustainable and meaningful. And that goes for old and new businesses alike. And so I think this is not a time to get scared. I think it's time to be bold. That's, that's my final thought, my weirdly optimistic. Gentlemen, I cannot thank you enough. This was such a hoot for me to have David Folkenflick, NPR's media correspondent, and stealth mode Joshua Topolsky. I mean, you're going to read all about him. He's one of the most highly coveted media execs out there. Uh, joining us from NPR's Bryant Park Studios. Thank you so much, gentlemen. Thanks, Thank Rob. You. Full disclosure, our engineer is John Valentine. We are online natives pivoting to programmatic eyeballs in a vertically integrated digital media setting. Catch us on NPR One, iTunes, WRIR, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Acast, and if Mr. Topolsky can pull some choice Swedish strings for me, hopefully we'll be picked up by Spotify soon. God willing. I'm Robin Farzad, back with you next week. <laughs>